Amen. Please be seated. I want to say thank you to those who gave so generously that uh, to the Westminster slash Redeemer Scholarship Fund. It was able to uh, start the account with $5,126. That's a wonderful gift on your part. Thank you for doing that. And many people gave, so it was uh, neat to see everyone contribute and participate in the way they could to make sure that we always are able to send any of our students here at Redeemer who want to be at Westminster, they can make sure they can go by providing for them in this way. So thank you for doing that. We give praise to God for this. Now, I want to direct your attention back to the book of Galatians, where we left off at the beginning of June. Uh, We're back in Galatians, uh, starting at verse 10 of chapter 3. But I'll remind you where we have uh, come from here in chapter 3, where Paul writes to this uh, group of believers who had been uh, infiltrated with a distorted gospel. Uh, The Judaizers had come in and and had distorted the gospel of God's grace, which is faith in Christ and his work for a right relationship with God for salvation. And the Judaizers came in and, and said that it was Christ, but you also had to fulfill certain aspects of the Jewish law that they had to follow in their time. And so they added this, and this was a distortion, a distortion that rose to the level of Paul's calling the Galatians fools and accusing them of having deserted the message itself. Uh, You could argue that there were deeper moral problems as far as everyday life in the Corinthian church. But the Galatian church received one of the the sharpest introductions from Paul because such an essential element of the church's life in essence had been affected. The gospel itself. It was confused and distorted. And so he speaks very sharply to the Galatians so they recognize the urgency of having a right understanding of how we are made right with God. What could be more important? So Paul writes with that kind of tone. Now the text before the verses we are studying today, uh, we are reminded of Abraham's right relationship with God. It was based on faith in God's promise, ultimately of a redeemer. Not because he obeyed or was so righteous, but because he had faith. It was reckoned unto him as righteousness. And he's The example of justification by faith, rightness with God by faith in Christ. All the way back to Abraham, he's an example of it. And that's what Paul says, because he knows the Judaizers will be familiar with Abraham. And he knows even those who are Gentiles would be familiar with the story of Abraham. And it again would cement the idea, the biblical reality that we are made right with God by faith in his work through his son, the Lord Jesus. So let's pick up in Galatians 3, starting at verse 6. I will read to verse 14. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law 
by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the simplicity of the gospel message, for it is truly good news that Jesus would come to take our place on the cross of shame so that our sins could be forgiven be given a right standing with you through the sinless perfection of our Lord Jesus. Father, we confess that we are all too often swept into the sin, the Judaizers, which whispers to our hearts that we have somehow contributed something to our own good deeds or works so that you would accept us. And in a way, we cheapen what our Savior did. Father, as we study your holy word today, please make us to see the gospel in all its glorious simplicity and make it to have its transforming effect on our lives. Lord, too many are living in guilt and shame and bondage, thinking they're not accepted by you based on their inability to obey. Lord, transform us by your grace, which says that we are wholly accepted by you through Christ, because he obeyed, even to the point of death on the cross for us. We pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. It wasn't too long ago in a central Kansas town where an F4 tornado tore through the town and destroyed most of it. One man stood dazed and bewildered at the end of a stone driveway that led to a cement pad. And on the cement pad was twisted, broken 2x4s and 2x10s and busted in half sheetrock and twisted frames uh, for windows and glass strewn about and people in the distance you could see picking through the rubble trying to find things and he stood there as a reporter held a microphone to his face and he said that he had lost everything see he had just finished a nine-month build on his home he built it himself acting as the general contractor Hours of calls over the previous nine months, backbreaking sweat equity put into erecting this place of shelter and comfort for his family. He was middle aged, so this was something he had built up towards being able to do. Weeks of stress, waiting for this or that part to come, this or that crew to do a job that he had subcontracted out, needing a certain tool or a certain person to help him do another part of the project over a nine month period. Months of being consumed with trying to beat winter, making sure that the windows were in in time, that the furnace was ready to go, the roof was installed. That year would be remembered in the life of that family as the year of building that house. Everything, all their work went in to building that house over a nine-month period. Now he stood before a junk-filled lot that in no way resembled a homestead. He seemed to have no words, but he did mumbled a few memorable phrases. The one that stood out to me the most is his saying to the reporter, all this work for nothing. Simple, yet very profound. Hours, weeks, months, almost a year, a year of this hard effort could not stand up to the power of an F4 tornado. And my friends, all our efforts to be good, to accumulate a track record of obedience or righteousness, 
to work our way towards acceptance before God. All that we do, none of that, in the final analysis, will stand against the righteous gaze of a completely holy God. And we will be left to say, all that work for nothing. This is the underlying appeal of Galatians. Make sure that your reliance, your trust, your faith, your belief, your confidence is in Christ and his work and not in your own. Paul writes, look with me at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and to do them. He further says, now it is evident, it is obvious, that no one is justified before God by the law. How could they be, is what he's saying rhetorically. For the righteous shall live by faith. Now clearly we can see from the onset, and the witness of the Bible tells us so, the problem is not the law. Uh, We repeat And recite the law every first Sunday of the month because it's holy. It's a reflection of God. It's good. The law is a joy to those who are in Christ. And we say it as an affirmation of what we believe is true about God. And we also say it as a confession of sin because we know we can't keep it. We say it with the confidence that Jesus kept it. And now because of Christ's keeping of the law, he starts to work in our lives to transform us. And we can start to obey as a reaction to God's grace to us. But what Paul's speaking of is he's speaking to those who are relying upon their ability to keep the law to be right with God. That's what he's speaking of. To that person, let it be known, they're cursed because they can't keep it. There's there's no other answer. If you're trying to keep the law or do good things, because the law, the Ten Commandments, typifies the law, the book of the law. It's the At least we could say it's the structure of all moral and ethics. So whatever deeds or good things you're doing that you think count, for your acceptance with God, just understand this means you're cursed. You cannot earn this before God. And Paul wants us to see this clearly. And this is why Riken, Philip Riken, is right on when he says, the problem with the law then is not the law. The problem with the law is our sin. Since we cannot keep the law, the law cannot bless us. All it can do is curse us placing us under the condemnation of divine wrath. Paul is writing against the notion that our obedience is what earns us right standing with God. He uses the word law in a distinctly Jewish way to reference the specific commandments of the Old Testament in particular, but recognize it applies to a larger concept. What Paul says can be applied to our deeds, our works, the things we do that we think are good or we would define as good. For all those who rely on works of the law are under a curse. It also means, more simply, for all those who rely on works are under a curse. Now, let's consider first, to reorient ourselves, that Galatians addresses at least two kinds of professing believers. You might say that the Bible always is addressing two kinds of professing believers. Now, there may be a third category, someone who's never heard, and God uses that hearing to bring Uh, bring them to saving faith in Christ. Uh, But in general, when the epistles are being written, it's going to be read and preached and taught in a church. And in the church at any given time, there are at least two different kinds of people. 
And Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised, uses the same division when he speaks and he's preaching. Now, think of it this way to recognize what Paul is also doing. You are all probably very familiar with the story of the prodigal son that Jesus tells. Now, I would submit to you that that's a misleading title to put on. It doesn't say that in the actual text, the prodigal son. In fact, it's, it's really better said uh, two sons. It's not as catchy and you wouldn't remember it as fast, but it's really a story about two sons. Uh, Jesus is at least addressing, and there's multi-levels, at least addressing two different people and their reaction to God's grace. That's really what the story is about. Now, I want you to think about it for a moment. You have this father who represents God, who's giving and benevolent. He has these two sons. He gives them things they don't deserve. It's his gift to them. They were born into it. They didn't do anything to earn it. They're his sons. One of the sons comes to him in an arrogant fashion and says, I want what's coming to me, even though he didn't earn it. It wasn't his. It was an inheritance he just presumed upon. I want it now, and I want to go do what I want to do. And so the, the father gives him, blesses him with this, stewardship of stuff that had been earned by him, not by the son, he goes off and blows it in riotous living of the worst sort. But he is brought so low in the process that he comes to a point where, even as a Jewish person, looking at pigs, a, a dirty animal in their minds, and sees what the pigs are eating, something they couldn't even digest if they wanted to, a person that is, and sees it and says, I wish I could eat that. And he's brought as low as he can possibly be brought. And so he, he goes back to his father to beg to be a servant, and instead the father takes him in and shows great grace to him and lavishes upon him riches and kills the fatted calf. And, and that's the lost son of the two sons who had been found. Grace had come. He had recognized this grace. He had recognized his lowliness, and he comes. That's one crowd. The other crowd, while not given as much attention, may actually be the focus of the, the parable itself. It may be the main focus. It's the other son, the older brother, we might say. The one who had been at his father's house and thought by that time he deserved something. I mean, he'd been faithful, right? He'd been obedient, right? To the point to where he gets into his father's face and reveals his disrespect and says, Look, Dad, you owe me this, not him who went and blew it all. That's the older brother. That's the one who thinks because they've been there a while or have a corner on it somehow, they deserve what God's going to give them. God should give it to them anyways. Jesus addresses two different people, two different crowds. The older brother types are people who have been in the church a long time. They developed an attitude of pride around their ability to conform to a certain set of rules or outward duties. In fact, I think many older brother types aren't really even believers. They just were born in the church and they've learned the code of the church. And so when someone doesn't fit the code, they immediately look with judgment upon that person, which reveals they don't really think they need grace. They may not even be believers, but they're in the church. And they may be long-standing members of the church. They seem to be mature, but really have gotten way off track, at least, regarding the simplicity of their need for grace. They rely to some degree on their obedience, living a certain way, looking a certain way. They've come to believe they deserve something from God. They won't say it outwardly, but they believe it in their hearts. Someone else is blessed. They think, why not me? I've been more faithful than them. The older brother types get frustrated, sometimes even mad when they see people whom they think are presuming upon God's grace or, or don't look Christian enough. It's just not right. They shouldn't have it that, they shouldn't be able to do that. The older brother type thinks it's unfair when new believers who've lived lives of sin and then are redeemed have the same standing before God. It's okay, God, if you save them, but they're not as good as me still. That's what the older brother thinks. At worst, they really trust in themselves. 
they're not right with God, though they look religious. Whereas the lost son types, they come from a different place. The lost son types may be those who were in the church, then left, and are coming back now realizing God's goodness and grace, just like the prodigal son. The lost son type might be a new believer in our midst who has lived a life of self-dependence and self-indulgence, but has been brought low by God because God loves them, and now they know they need grace and come crawling to God with joy. They may not have it all together outwardly. They might not say just the right thing or articulate just the right thought in Sunday school. The lost son types may not know all the community rules and the particular acceptable uh, evangelical or reformed terms that they're supposed to use. The lost son types, on the other hand, don't depend on their works for acceptance with God. They depend on Christ alone. They do not need to be convinced of their sin and need of a Savior, for they are fully aware that he is their only hope. Maybe they still live in the wreckage of what happened in their life before, but make no mistake, they do not rely upon their works. Only Christ. The rub comes when there's a sizable population of older brother types who get frustrated, even mad, when there is a number of lost son types. And thus was the case in the Galatian church as Gentiles were coming to faith in droves. The Judaizers, the older brother types, couldn't live with the notion that Gentiles didn't have to follow the rules. Judaizers sought to heap on the new Gentile converts works of the law, like circumcision. So by addressing two different crowds, Jesus, when he's giving the parable, uh, the parable of the two sons, and now Paul, when he confronts the older brothers in Galatia, with the reality of their need to see themselves as lost sons also, who must trust in Christ alone. He also confronts us today as we consider what we are relying upon, whatever category you find yourself in. First, relying on good deeds, we learn to be right with God brings, and let's be clear, it brings a curse. Look at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, curse be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. There are several wonderful themes you probably noted already as we read these, just these few verses. Think of the themes, the biblical themes that we could explore if we had time. Uh, the relationship between works righteousness and how people think of works making themselves righteous. Correcting that. We have that theme. The law of God is brought up. We could study that for, for weeks. Uh, justification, how we're made right with God in a legal sense, but also in a sense as sons and daughters. Adoption, we could discuss. True righteousness, what it really is by faith in Christ. We see that introduced. Christ's substitution for us. What we should have paid for, he pays for. Redemption is here. But there's a theme I just want to mention because the word is mentioned five times in the verses that we are studying. The word is curse. Not a word we talk about too much. It's not exciting. Uh, it's certainly not uplifting to think of curse. But, but this word is used five times, so clearly it's important that we get this concept or Paul would not have used it. Verse 10, for all rely on, who rely on works of the law are under a curse. What is a curse? Well, a curse is really the worst of all things that you could say about something. Now think back at the old cartoons. Remember the old cartoons when the villain at the end 
got caught? Mighty Mouse, one of the greatest cartoons of all time. What did Oil Can Harry always say when he got busted at the end? Curses. Now that actually comes from a generation that understood that term better. It was the worst thing he could say because his situation could be no worse. Curses. It is a word that epitomized all there was about condemnation. All there was about being put out. You couldn't say a worse thing than curses. This is what it means. And we are under a curse when we're relying on something other than Christ in his works. Curse. To curse something, what is that? It's really to invoke misfortune upon them. To curse you. It's the worst thing you could say to somebody. Someone who is accursed is considered a scourge and put out. You've heard a person say, I feel like a curse. No one wants to be around a curse. A curse is to afflict. To keep a cursed thing in darkness, because that's the only place you would want it to be. Out of sight, away from community, out of relationship with anybody. Someone who is accursed is abandoned and therefore in torment. That's what it means to be cursed. Cursing refers to malediction. Now, you know we say a benediction every week. A blessing, a word, benediction. A word, ben, a good, diction word, a good word spoken to you. Maledictions, a bad word spoken to you, a curse to you. That's what it means. Think about it. We say, God bless you. What do we mean? We mean, may God's peace be upon you. May God's blessing, may he multiply your area. May he give you of his goodness. May he give you rest. May he give you peace. That's what we mean when we say, God bless you. What would we mean to say, God curse you? May God rip your, the peace out of your life. May he give you unrest. May you always strive. May you suffer. What could you say that would be worse than God curse you? Yet people use that language like it was nothing. Curse. Let's not miss this theme that's introduced in this verse. For all who rely on works of the law. Let's be clear. It's not that this is they're bad off or it's, mis- it's unfortunate for them. They're, they're missing out. It's, they're under a curse. That's what it says. And cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and to do them. In other words, if you want to say to God that I can earn my way by doing good things, then you want to understand or you should understand that what he's saying is that you must do it all then. You can't just do some of it. I, I can come before God and say, God, I've kept four of the Ten Commandments. That's pretty good. No, it's not. Forty percent. I'm cursed if I go that route. If you rely on your works or your deeds, your perceived goodness to be right with God, it pulls no punches. It uses the words of Deuteronomy 27, Curse be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. You know, I have heard many people, maybe you have too, maybe you say it. You say to a person, how do you know you're right with God? Or how do you know where you'll go when you die? And I've had many, many people say, I believe that I've been a pretty good person. I believe that... That at the end of my days, that God is going to look at the good things I've done and the bad things I've done, and I, I hope that he'll see the good things that I've done have outweighed the bad. And people mean that with all their heart. Maybe you say, you're saying that today. I just have to say to you with all the pastoral love I can muster, that if that's what you're saying, you're under a curse. Because your good 
will not, does not outweigh the bad. As bad as you feel right now, and if you're really honest with yourself and you take account of, and you just have a moment of recognizing how opposed to God you are in your natural self, uh, that feeling you have right now, relax because you're worse than that. How's that? We, we just give ourselves so much credit. I, I mean, I'm able to feel good about myself because uh, I'm a reverend. And I'm able to maybe hide some of it anyways from you, that I can wear a robe and I can kind of just have a certain amount of authority by the word of God and I can make you believe that I know a little more than you, so therefore I'm a little more acceptable to God. And frankly, what I've done is what we all do at some point is we, we bring up what we think our obedience level is in our mind. And the way we do it is not by comparing ourselves to God's standard or to Christ. We do it by comparing ourselves to who? Each other. Well, in that light, I got at least a third of you beat, I think. I think. Okay, I'm all right then. And you look across the aisle and say, yeah, I'm not that bad. I never a good week, but man, I know so-and-so over there. And we do this kind of self, this comparison thing, and we live our lives with a certain security in the fact that we may be better than some others. I'm training for this race I'm going to do. I've never done anything like it, and I'm not very fast, but I'm doing it just to give myself discipline to run and to ride my bike, and I have to swim too, which I don't do very well. But you know what? I looked at the list last year, and I thought to myself, I'd be happy. I looked at people in my age group. I wish they put the weight on there, but they don't. But the age group, <laughs> if, I, if I get in the middle of that, I'm all right. I mean, that's okay. I don't want to be, I know I'm not going to be the top. I just can't. But I don't want to be down here with that dude who's down at the bottom. That's pretty pathetic. It took him an hour and a half. Okay. I'm comparing myself to a group of individuals, people. And we do this all the time. But when you transfer that kind of comparison to the idea that you would be acceptable to God based on each other. Where does that put us? Cursed. That's where we're at. Make no mistake. Nothing less. Cursed. In the ultimate sense of the word cursed. He he says after making the statement in verse 11, look there. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. He says this because he just got done saying that you've got to follow all the rules. And so it's obvious, Paul says, that no one is then justified by God, by the law, before God, by the law. Because no one can keep it. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fall short. But then he makes a statement, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, again, no sinner has ever earned favor with God. No sinner has ever earned favor with God by doing good works. No sinner has ever been justified by obedience. No sinner has ever abided by all the things written in the book of the law. So therefore, every sinner stands condemned. But it says, the righteous shall live by faith. So this is clear reference to those who can be righteous by faith. This brings us to the glory of what the underlying message of Galatians is, what the underlying message of the Bible is. Relying on Christ. There we find indescribable blessing and joy. We find peace. Verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Live by faith in what? Okay, the righteous live by faith. They don't live by works. That's clear. They live by faith. Well, what does that mean? Well, back in Galatians 2.16, it says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So by faith in Christ and his keeping of the law, his works, his dying for our sins, our inability, our lack of success in keeping them, he dies for them, the perfect one who kept them. And now faith in him, his work, God's acceptance of his sacrifice is rising again. Now we are declared righteous. Look at the profound words of verse 13. Take them in. Christ redeemed us. That means he bought us. He purchased us from the curse of the law. Look what it says, brothers and sisters. By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who would hang on a tree. This is a reference to Deuteronomy 21. It's not a direct prophecy of the kind of death Jesus would die, although it fulfills that. It's a reference to what happened to criminals who were executed in the time of Moses. Their bodies were stuck on a tree so that birds of prey could eat them and their bodies can rot and you could know that they were cursed. Jesus became a curse so that you would have the blessing of his righteousness and eternal life. It doesn't say he took on a curse. It said he became a curse. The invoking of misfortune that comes upon the accursed was placed upon Christ instead of us. He was damned in our stead, condemned in our place. He was afflicted for us. He was put off into darkness for a time, separated from his God, of no desert of his own, but because he took on our sin and became a curse. He was separated from his God, his Father. To be cursed is to be tormented, and he was tormented. He took that torment for our sin. He was forsaken, abandoned as a sin offering in our stead. He was cursed in that he was put out of communion with God in relationship with his Father. This is what Jesus did for my sins, for your sins. God removed his peace, his peace from his Son on our behalf. God declared his only Son to be a scourge and poured his wrath upon him as if it were us. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. To be redeemed means to be bought out of slavery, to be set free from the just deserts of our sins, to, be, to have our sins paid for. And he redeemed us, and the way he did it is by becoming a curse. Why? Back to the blessing that was promised to Abraham by faith. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. My friends, my brothers and sisters, in light of this great work of Christ on our behalf, on your behalf, do you see the arrogant folly of thinking that some work that we could do would, up, would somehow improve upon the offering? For sin that the Lord Jesus made. And do you recognize that by thinking that, that's what you're saying? Do you see the insult to God's saving work in the notion of our contributing somehow by our obedience to Christ's obedience? Do you see the insult that is to God's grace? This is why I believe Peter wrote, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your for- from your forefathers. Not with perishable things, Peter says, such as silver and gold, 
but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What are you relying upon, my dear friend? There really are only two possibilities, your works or Christ alone. Not Christ and your works, because that's works. Your works or Christ alone, what are you relying upon? Just know that reliance upon your works brings a curse. Reliance upon Christ brings indescribable blessing and eternal joy. John Stott said it well in his comments on this text. The apostle sets the alternatives before us in the starkest contrast. He tells us of two destinies and of two possible roads by which to reach them. He speaks like a kind of New Testament Moses who said, I have set before you life and death works. Blessing and curse. Blessing from Christ. Curse by reliance upon our own perceived righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, you have set before us life in Christ, death on our own. You set before us blessing in Christ and his finished work, faith and trust in him and him alone, and curse. Belief that we somehow deserve something from you or have somehow earned it. Lord, I thank you for opening our eyes to grace. I pray, O oh Father, that you would change us in our relationship to the law would be transformed now that we recognize that you have given us a new heart, one that can be devoted to you in reaction to what you have done. And Lord, I pray that this week, in particular ways, each of my brothers and sisters would sense with a new freshness what has been done for them. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.